0: I come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Those are verses 169 through 176 of Psalm 119, verses 145 to 176, of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, October the 6th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing to look at the lives of the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, in Second Kings 22, verse 14 through chapter 23, verse 3, still in the epistle of, first epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church, the 11th chapter, the 23rd through the 34th verses, and in the gospel according to Matthew, the 9th chapter, the 9th through the 17th verses. So remember from yesterday, we have a new king, we have uh, Josiah, who had sent um, a man to the temple to talk to the priest to say, whatever has been brought, whatever you've taken in in the temple tax, give that to the workmen who are working on the temple and the restoration of the temple, and do it without asking them for any kind of an accounting at all, because I trust them. And, And while he was there, the priest said, hey, I found this book about the law of the Lord, and and he handed it to the secretary who brings it back to to the king after having read it, and then reads it to the king, and the king tears his clothes and goes into mourning, for he realizes, oh my gosh, we are under judgment because of our failure to keep the covenant. And so that's where we pick up today. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Achbor, and Shaphan, and Esaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked to her. And she said to them, "'Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, "'Behold, I'll bring disaster on this place and upon its inhabitants, "'all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, "'because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods.'" That they might provoke me to anger and with all the work of their hands, therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. I mean poor Josiah, the guy comes in, having followed after Manasseh and he who was a wicked, wicked king, comes in and, and only after about eighteen years discovers that his the the kingdom is lost because of the evil wickedness of Manasseh, and there's nothing that he can do to prevent it because the people have been so corrupted by this mixed worship of, of Yahweh and other gods that, that it can't be restored, essentially. And then she goes on to—she, the prophetess, goes on to say, but to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard— Because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought word back to the king. So the, the good news is, is that you're going to be spared from having to see what's going to happen because of your piety, because you received the word of the Lord, and you understood that, and you repented. You will be spared having to see what's going to happen to Jerusalem. However, the bad news is it's going to happen anyway. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant, In the covenant, so poor Josiah, he, he he knows that that Jerusalem's days are numbered. So he will live out the last thirteen years of his kingship. He doesn't know obviously that it's going to be thirteen years, but he'll live out the last thirteen years of his kingship, knowing that these people are under judgment, and so his call should be for them to repent and for for them to deal with their sins and to prepare for this and that, lest the Lord turn exactly as He promised in. Um, to Solomon, when Solomon dedicated the temple, remember Solomon prayed, wherever your people are, if they turn and they repent with their whole hearts and turn to you, then please forgive them. So they know that there's an opportunity yet, that the Lord may relent of this punishment that he has decreed against them for their failure to keep the covenant with them, for their turning their backs on him. But he also knows, the Lord does, what's in the hearts of men. And so he knows whether that repentance is genuine or whether it's just momentary in order to to alleviate the potential suffering of this thing. And so the proof is in the pudding, as the proof is always in the pudding. And so here we see this decree against Jerusalem. However, the Lord lifts up Josiah and promises that he will be spared seeing or living through that judgment against Jerusalem. Jesus in the gospel here calls Matthew, who is the writer of the gospel. As Jesus passed on from there, he comes out of Capernaum, he sees a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. He Matthew's call and response are exactly like those of the previous disciples, all the fishermen that Jesus called away from their occupations into discipleship and his response was exactly the same he immediately left and followed after Jesus he left his receipt of custom he's not going to be able to go back to that he's he, when he walks away from this it's not something that he can go back to he has he has abandoned his post and and left behind significant income and instead decided that the call of Jesus for whatever reason whatever he had heard of Jesus whatever he had seen of Jesus the call to follow him was greater than any riches or wealth or whatever that he could have had but when he did this it's a radical break with his past and with his future his future is unutterably altered at this moment as soon as he rises and follows Jesus he walks away from his past and that's really the call for all of us in, in many ways. We're called away from our past. Whoever and whatever we were before that, we're supposed to change our minds, change our thought processes completely. And that's exactly what Paul says in that Romans 12 passage, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And the reason for that is is that our minds have already been shaped. We don't come to Jesus as a blank slate, We come with with a lot of preconceived notions and and passions and desires and predilections and preferences and all that kind of stuff. And so those things need to all be examined. They all need to be put under the microscope and submitted before him that he might literally transform our minds so that we might desire the things of the kingdom, so that we might have the, the, the mind that David had when he wrote Psalm 119, the ode to the law. We have to submit those things. And the problem is, is that that over the last, I don't know, fifty, sixty, seventy five years, we've done exactly the opposite. We've submitted Scripture to scrutiny based on enlightenment principles. And so the 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 objection becomes then that these things are not made for modern man and modern man has a different understanding. Well there was a there's a received understanding prior to that, and it's a received understanding that goes back all the way to the beginning of the church, except for the Old Testament and that received understanding goes back a lot further than that. We recognize that it all points to Jesus, but it's important that we not change everything because of modern scholarship. This has nothing to do with modern scholarship, but what happens is we bring those principles to bear on the word of God so that not so that we can understand it better and so we but but it's so we can critique scripture. And it the, the opposite is what's occurring here. The word of God is intended to critique us. And so Matthew allows for that to happen. He leaves behind everything, except he said that Jesus reclined at table in the house. That would be Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. These were Matthew's friends, because righteous people wouldn't have had anything to do with him, because he was a tax collector, and so his friends were other tax collectors and, quote, sinners. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does, why does he eat with these sort of you know, scum. But when he heard it, he said, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So what Jesus is, is doing there is, is he's convicting them of sin, because this is a clear Old Testament principle <laughs> that's shot all through the Psalms, all through the prophets, all through the Proverbs, everything bespeaks this one thing. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. It's it's a way of life. It's it's the way that you approach other people is the way that what I desire. I don't desire you just to come and provide sacrifices. I mean, there are multiple occasions when the land is wealthy and they're providing abundant sacrifices, but, but it's to be used like a bribe and to allow me to do whatever I want instead of constantly being hammered by prophets that that say, you know, your sacrifices are not all that important to me. What's really important is that you become the kind of people who display my image to the world, particularly to one another. And so Jesus the disciples of John then come to him and say, What do we and the Pharisee why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? And Jesus said to him, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment, and the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And so Jesus is not keeping the traditions. Jesus and his disciples, I should say, are not keeping the traditions, the traditions of the Jews. And that's their question is, y'all aren't keeping the traditions. You know, you're not fasting when it's time to fast. Jesus' response is, there's a new thing, and I'm that new thing. I am the bridegroom. And it's exactly what Isaiah says in one passage where he says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. It springs up, do you not perceive it? And so that we can continue to keep the festivals at some level, but, but only to the extent that we recognize that they all point to and prefigure Jesus. And so it's we keep them in a different way because of Jesus, because he has come. And so it's, he's, he says, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But, but right now is not the time for fasting because you're with the bridegroom. And when the bridegroom is there, then the feast has come. And so it, Jesus is, again, speaking about his death. There will come a time when he's not there. But, but we need to make sure that we examine our own traditions and make sure that those traditions have more to do with Jesus than they do with tradition. And that's always the call, I think, to the church, to make sure that we don't fall into sort of that rote um, ritualism. That can be dead. Doesn't mean that ritual's bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm going to show you something in a minute that, that I want, that I think it, it would be at some levels, it would be sort of like what I've been saying about Josiah discovering the law. <clears throat> so in this Corinthians passage, Paul is speaking about ritual. He's speaking about communion. He says, so I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, that was something to me that to, when I read that today, that, that you proclaim the Lord's death is what you're doing when you uh, celebrate communion. I don't think I'd ever noticed it that clearly, that, that, that what, it, what is it intended to signify is, is his death. His resurrection is part of that, because it's all part of one thing. But when Jesus says this, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And one of the mistakes I think we make in the church today is that what we mean by remember is, oh yeah, that's right, I forgot about that. But that's not how this word is intended This word is intended to be like the Old Testament, whenever they kept the festivals, whenever they keep the Passover. The the intention is to remember it in the sense of remembering it in such a vivid, personal way that we bring the experience and the recollection of it into the present. It's as though we were personally going through that first Passover. And that's the intention of the way that they're intended to celebrate the feast. That's the reason they build booths right now during the season when, I did, when I'm taping this, the, the season of Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, where uh, Jewish people will build little booths on their homes, and they'll live in those booths during the period of the, the celebration of the uh, Feast of Sukkot to remember the time in the wilderness, but not just to remember it in the, oh, yeah, that's right kind of way, but no, to make it personal and present. Hence, That's remembrance. That's an amnesis kind of remembrance. That's the Greek word that's used here, and also the Greek translation of the word, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament. He said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let it, in other words, you're guilty of his crucifixion, and you're not absolved by that body and blood. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. So he, he's telling them that you need to examine yourselves first. And in the tradition that, that I came from, in the Anglican tradition, we always had to say commun- confession before we took communion. That was the way of judging the body. We also said the— um, the creed, the Nicene Creed, whenever we did communion, we say, said the Nicene Creed. That way we stood together and proclaimed the great truths of the gospel, the great truths the Church has received and passed on down the years, since the 4th century at least. The, but, but in the 4th century, it just codified the Church's beliefs prior to that. So we're, we're confessing what we believe about him, we're discerning him, and then we discern where we stand. And the older confession, we've replaced it now with a lot less penitential language, for some reason, is this. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men. So we're confessing who the Father is. We're asking him to forgive us. He is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the maker of all things, and He is the judge of all men. Now listen to this language. We acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. In other words, we're recognizing that, that these are horrible things, and there's a lot of them. Manifold sins and wickedness means there's a lot. It's not just a thing here and there. But we acknowledge and bewail them, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, most justly provoking thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry, for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Do you feel that way about your sins? Are are you horrified by your sins? Because that's exactly what that says. I can remember sitting there. I was I was in the eight o'clock service at Paul's Island, had a collar on because I was going to the hospital right after that. And as I said this confession, realized I don't feel that way at all. That there were a whole lot of things that were horrific in my thought life. For instance, that that. I I really didn't think we're all that bad, And, and it made it personal in such a way that I thought, you know, I don't think I can take communion today, but what do you do if you're a priest sitting in a service, and everybody knows you, and you suddenly don't take communion, they're all going to want to know why that is. Is there some problem here? Is there some problem that he has with that priest who's giving communion? Is there some other issue? But that's what Paul's saying, is we have to discern the body. We need to feel the appropriate weight of our sins upon us. We need to see them the way God sees them, and, and, and I think we very rarely do that. I'm going to put something in the notes for today, and it's called an exhortation. I'm not sure that I ever used it, nor have I ever been in a servant service I mean, where it was used, but it's in the prayer book nonetheless, and and it it is intended to be an aid and a guide to the preparation for, uh, for coming to the table. I think if we actually read this right before communion every week, we might have to take a little while before we could say, okay, raise your hand if you think you're ready for communion, because it's a heavy burden but it's the burden Paul's laying on here in this passage. And it matters. And it matters because look at Josiah. Look what happened in that lesson, that that we need to feel the weight of sin. We need to feel the horror of sin in order that we can receive the full grace and mercy that we need in order to repent truly and turn away from those sins and move forward. We have to understand how bad they are before we can receive the fullness of grace the fullness of mercy and see how much jesus honestly loves us in order that we can move forward